Ah, oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Well, and welcome to episode 60. Yes, we made it to big six zero of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Nugabauer, coming to you live to air. Yeah, it's finally cooler here in suburban Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In case you need to know, it is Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. And yes, I'm still alive, although I'm getting over some bit of an allergies. So apologize for my voice there. It is also the Feast of the Nativity of Mary, if you're counting, or Tuesday after the 14th Sunday after Pentecost, if you're not. I'm joined, as always, by the greatest droid in the galaxy, R2-D2. Say hello, R2. <laughs> yes, he's recovering, too. And uh, my trusty water bottle, as, as usual. Um, remember, kids, hydration is salvation. And no, that's not a baptism joke. I'm take a swig of water here. Tonight we are continuing our look at Claudia Gray's masterful novel, Master and Apprentice, and especially delving into the various themes of prophecy in the character of Master Qui-Gon Jinn. Now I'll, I'll get, address this off the top. Why am I doing this now and not when the novel came out in April of 2019? Well, the fun, uh, sure, this is what I want you to believe reason is... Uh, High Republic is coming out in, in January, and of course Claudia Gray has a big role in that. She's writing the young adult novel, which will be the second novel to come out uh, after Charles Soule's Light of the Jedi in January. There's definitely going to be themes there, as I've gone into in a previous episode, that uh, I'm going to want to dive into. And so I'm getting getting you and me <laughs> and all of us into that mindset of... Uh, the Jedi of this time period. I am thinking of doing something similar with for Dooku Jedi Lost with Command Scott, who's writing the Marvel comics. Excited for that. And of course, when uh, the High Republic take comes comes out in January, uh, Light of the Jedi. I am going to dive headfirst. It's almost going to feel like High Republic is going to take over this podcast. I don't know if that's entirely true, but uh, I'm very excited to see what. This, that whole time period, whole call it a series, call it a who knows what, has to say about our understanding of the Force and the Jedi, and in, my, in particular Christian faith, and faith here in the West, and in, in the world that we live in today. The realistic reason why I'm going into this book now and not last April Back then, uh, I just finished my time in rural Alberta. It was about just the timing. Um, uh, rural Alberta, I was on a vacation, and then moving to Edmonton in, in early May and beginning an intensive CPE course, uh, the hospital chaplaincy course. Lots of stress, lots of excitement. I really did want to do the series that I'm doing right now. But it, it was a very intensive course. It was all hands on deck and not just for, in terms of time and, and work, but a lot of emotional and physical and uh, spiritual mental energy that I needed to focus on that. So I mean, didn't do any podcasts back then um, that summer. Um, but now there's time. And now, especially now that I was doing another course uh, this past summer, now there's time to fit in alongside my part-time job at a church. That's good to know. Yay. <laughs> good announcement there. Part-time job at a church, but alongside of that, uh, time to to look back at this great novel and, and look forward to 
what's coming in High Republic. And I, I'm fairly sure, you know, it, I'm sure Claudia Gray was tapped for this group for a while now. But if there's any book that would have confirmed it in the minds of the Lucasfilm folks, it is this novel. Um, really goes for the themes that, uh, or some of the themes of the time period, the, the concerns that, you know, I, I, I'm guessing High Republic will lead into and speak to, to some degree. So hope you'll understand that explanation or at least accept it. Um, sorry, accept that explanation, at least understand it. <laughs> uh, and enjoy this, this retrospective of this great novel that came out last year. Before that, uh, a few shout-outs I want to make. Uh, Force Fest and Dragon Kong was virtual. Um, the two virtual cons the last two weekends. Uh, Dragon Con being Dragon Con. It's... it's delightful it's it was weird even i got a taste of the weirdness and i always wanted to go to dragon con force fest that was put on by fans the weekend that we would have all been at celebration star wars celebration and that one especially was felt like a virtual celebration it felt like the type of encounters with new voices voices you hadn't i hadn't encountered before a few of them just finding people, podcasts just like this one who are trying to reconcile, specific, not reconcile, relate and bring in conversation the galaxy far, far away and fandom in general with uh, with the Christian faith and um, the faithful fangirl and uh, blanking on this another one that I'll find. I'll put in the, in the show notes um, two very exciting finds on that score. Um, more, more somberly, I could say, uh, I do want to mention, do my own little tribute here to Chadwick Boseman, who sadly died of, uh, cancer at the age of 43, uh, last week or so. That one, I, I felt that in my gut. <laughs> um, Black Panther was the first film outside of Star Wars that I just had to mention when it came out. I had to talk about it a little bit here on this podcast and I declared that it may have been the most important MCU film even at that time and that was before the Black Lives Matter protests of the last few months it's fair to say that that film's importance has even increased now um, it, just like the protests uh, sparked by the murder of George Floyd and uh, the murders that continue uh, it expressed the experience of black folks around the world, this film, and especially in the U.S., you know, that feeling that their country and their world isn't for them, you know, an experience borne by colonialism, police brutality, tokenism, and other aspects of white supremacy. And we see that in, of course, Michael B. Jordan's masterful performance and uh, the way that character lands wishing his ancestors had been thrown off the boat, right? But Black Panther also pointed towards a, a future and possible present opportunities in which black folks can take the lead in fostering the welfare of our one human tribe as T'Challa ends up in front of the UN of all places. That film is both very realist and very hopeful um, and I think I know a lot of Chadwick Boseman's work. I'm going to watch 42 
sometime soon. I'm going to watch Black Panther again. Both very real, realist about how the world is and the black experience in America specifically and throughout the world. And very hopeful. The promise of, of black folks in North America and throughout the world. Um, and a lot of that we do have to, we do owe to Michael B. Jordan. We owe a heck of a lot to Ryan Coogler. But the bulk of the load, we can say, was born by, by Chadwick Boseman. And both on and off the screen in this film and throughout the MCU, starting with Captain America Civil War, ending with Endgame, right? Uh, that connective strain uh, is going to be a gap, a, a hole that I hope the MCU doesn't try to fill too quickly. I do want Shuri, as seen some of the comics, to take on the mantle of Black Panther. But we also need to honor this loss. Um, you know, my, my, my prayers go with, with his family, with uh, all those who knew him and loved him. And we know he is going to find rest in God's eternal loving arms. Um, he was a man of faith. He was a man of integrity, an artist of true depth and talent, and he will be missed. So I won't worry about R2 <laughs> right now, but I will raise my water and take a bit of silence for Chadwick Boseman. Okay, so on to the main topic, and it worked out nicely this way that uh, my point about realism and hope in Black Panther, that's not just a segue. Um, it's also at the heart of this episode tonight, talking about Qui-Gon's prophetic realism. And uh, you know, last week we talked about uh, Qui-Gon, the power of his message and his, his ideals and his vision. He also, you know, has a very strong dose of realism and, and how that connects to the vision. I'll get into that. The realism itself we see expressed in that very same chapter that I discussed last week in this. That in that chapter, in chapter around page forty-one to forty-four, Obi Wan's in Qui Gon's quarters and they're having this discussion about what the prophecies are. Before that. Obi-Wan is recalling a previous conversation. So he's on his way. Uh, or, or I guess he, I think he's, uh, he's, he's in the archives and he's, oh, this is so boring. What am I doing here? Um, but he, he remembers actually that, you know, th there is some deep import and he recalls something that Qui-Gon had told him. And so Obi-Wan recalls this. Oh, uh, I'll read, and this is the bottom of page 40 here. It would be one thing if Qui-Gon were among the temple scholars, someone whose entire career had been spent researching antiquity. Obi-Wan at least would have known what he was getting into. But in virtually every other way, Qui-Gon Jinn was a realist, plain-spoken and practical, almost to a fault. What use are ideals if we cannot fit them to the universe as we find it? Qui-Gon had once asked him. If our beliefs tell us one thing, and the needs of real people tell us another, can there be any question of which we should listen to? 
This all sounded very lofty when Qui-Gon said it, but in actuality, and this is a very small minor example here, we had things like, it's okay to borrow a spaceship from criminals if you really need it. Or if you, I can win this tribe's independence in a game of chance, then it's worth selling my, my Padawan's best robe <coughs> Sorry for chips to get into the game. You know, we have this, this tension with the Jedi. You know, they are literally in this ivory tower. And there's a very, you know, fascinating depiction. There's, well, mind me while I move to another page here. <laughs> um, you know, this was intentional by George Lucas, clearly, to have, uh, have the Jedi Temple sitting on top of Coruscant. And I think I've gone through this before. I went into this actually, I think, discussing uh, the setting of Phantom Menace in Coruscant before this novel came out. <laughs> you know, beginning of 2019. These literal ivory towers. And, uh, you know, there's this the question of, yes, there's this Jedi, this beacon of faith and hope in the Force throughout the galaxy. And, Thinking about the High Republic, one of the things I'm curious about and I really hope to see is do the, the regular people actually believe and trust in the Force? Are the Jedi able to instill that hope and that faith? Um, you know, but there's also the real lived experience that the Jedi may or may not encounter with people. And... Um, it's the prophet's role to, you know, uh, role to point out that difference and that distinction. The prophet has this very tricky, awkward dance of naming the world or the galaxy or whoever, wherever, as it is, and of naming our delusions of grandeur, right? our our attempts to self-aggrandize, right, at the expense of people in the real world or that that is the real world but uh and we got into last week you know, the pretensions to power the pretensions to um, you know, the vanity that luke talks about in the last jedi of having hold of the force and mastery of the force that sounds eerily close to the dark side right there's this awkward dance of, of naming the world as it is in all its mess and pointing to actual ideals and calling people toward them you know, a mess of you know, we can have beliefs in the abstract um, you know, but, the, but those can be detached from not just the, the mess and the struggles of people but their hopes and their promise right? um, Again, going back to Black Panther, I can't, it's, it's in my mind here. Right? The hopes of real people to contribute to the great human family, the great galactic family. And that is a vision and an ideal. Um, but we need to name the ways that people's opportunities for that are blocked or ignored or stifled or... Um, Act, people actively work against those opportunities. 
there there are two I'm getting what I'm getting at is there are two aspects here of the real world and uh, real world namely the, the the hopes and dreams and goals of people on the ground or as I'll get to it in in a bit underground <laughs> um, and the struggles and complications and complexities and just downright evil and pretensions that especially people in power often take on it's the role of the prophet to name that i think of, of isaiah isaiah 6 the call narrative like go to this people say hearing they have ears but they cannot hear and eyes but they cannot see announce to this people their rebellion right um it's a tricky awkward dance because the prophet is still actually meant to call real people to a vision of hope but if that vision if that prophet is to have any real effect it's not so much, not just the naming the the distance from uh, the present reality to that vision it's the harder work of connecting the present reality to that vision right? connecting our beliefs about in Qui-Gon's case, what the force is, what people are, are <laughs> uh, how everything holds together, and uh, what's going on with people on the ground, or in politics, and you know, it, it, what it is on one planet, it's a criminal; on another planet, it's a freedom fighter <laughs> type of thing. Or in one circumstance, yes, th this organization is slightly off the law but off the books but if they're going to get to help people better qui-gon unlike the jedi council unlike probably you or me uh is going to have qui-gon's going to have less qualms about engaging them it, it's kind of funny i i wonder if that's where people think he's a gray jedi because he's willing to uh willing to engage the, the the gray of the world and, and i think it's mixing mixing metaphors here mixing two definitions of black and white because it's black and white and dark and white right when it comes to dogmas of black and white qui-gon isn't bound by abstract ideals right? he's willing to engage the gray when it comes to light and dark <laughs> he is a servant of the light it's just that maybe some grayer means uh, things that seem off seem out of out of off the beaten path right uh, may follow the light better right? the 99 sheep they're fine <laughs> you, they, they're, they're good you don't need to worry about them if that one sheep has gone off the path you got to go off the path yourself and go get him an impressive example of what Qui-Gon you know, the way Qui-Gon wants to put all this into action uh, has is found on page 73 and he's musing about the location of, of younglings training um, 
Well, I'll, I'll start bottom of 72 and I'll, I'll go, go on to 73. And, and this comes out of Obi-Wan expressing something, him very, being very sheltered and, and unaware of the world as it is. Poor, poor kid. Uh, why should the Jedi raise so many of their younglings on the richest, busiest planet in the galaxy? In Coruscant. It made sense for the Jedi Council to, Jedi Council to be located there. Interesting, he says it does make sense for them to be located there at the center of government. The council members didn't need to be in constant contact with younglings. Perhaps we might move, and this is, that's the narrator, and this is going directly into his own mind, right? the reliable thought here. Perhaps we might move, move more of the schools, or at least the creches. I got that. No, I'll read the Perhaps we might move more of the schools, or at least the creches. There are numerous worlds safe enough for us to shelter the younglings, where life is lived more simply, in ways more familiar throughout the galaxy, where the children might be surrounded by farmland or fisher beings, where we interact more with the communities around us, and train new Jedi to be as much a part of the worlds as separate from them. And I want to continue for a second. He caught himself, Fargan caught himself. He was focusing on the future rather than the present. Electric, given Obi-Wan, would, would have been better delivered to himself. And, and we see two things there. I, the reason I, I kept going with that is one of the ways we get into abstractions is by having these plans. And, and one of the things he's thinking about here is when I'm on the council, when I finally say, accept this this invitation to join the council this is one of the things i'm going to pursue and it's not wrong for him to think that as we see at the beginning of the phantom menace you know, don't you know center don't center your anxieties i forget what the what the actual quote is but keep your attention here and now where it belongs right what he's really doing in the real world so that's a little another little example but the main practical example is actually have these kids grow up in other places. I mean, I think in Legends, um, we even see to some extent, maybe with, with Luke's temple um, before The Force Awakens, before it gets destroyed. You know, they're, they're in these places, and I think probably in contact with real people in the real world. We see with the child... You know, I said fisher beings, and I thought my mind goes straight to the planet uh, where the Seven Samurai remake of The Mandalorian, where the child encounters these real people who have this real economic threat, well, this real threat probably motivated by economics, right? This is how this rival group feeds themselves uh, by <laughs> commandeering this, this walker. That's another example, but um, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating idea. We don't haven't seen much in canon. Clearly, you know, a lot has been made about the way the main uh, the main procedure for finding and raising Jedi is to take them away from their parents, um, take them to the temple for their whole lives. It's the way. Qui-Gon was raised, it's the way 
Obi-Wan was raised. It's not interesting the way Anakin was raised or Dooku. And in Dooku, Jedi Lost, we see, well, it was a little bit, but Dooku actually finds his own family again. And that, that gets complicated. Um, of course, Anakin never, never forgets his family. Um, the Rael Averroes we see uh, when he's is taken when he's four, and that's considered old by then, right? <laughs> um, even then, that can still happen in in Qui Gon's scheme here. I think uh, I don't think he's disputing that procedure, but be definitely disputing this idea of of them being sequestered in the temple on the top of the galaxy, right? literally quite literally physically above coruscant and um, you know never really taken out much never spent quality real time with people and there's this interesting direct parallel that we've seen with seminaries over the last uh last century really the last uh, yeah well since since vatican ii um Protestant seminaries, not so much. I think it's, it's more Catholic seminaries. But probably Church of England Anglican seminaries, too. Um, they used to be out in the countryside, in the middle of nowhere. They used to be a monastic enclosure. And I'll get to monasticism in a second. But they used to be away in this monastic community. And the, these maybe they'd be kids, they'd be teenagers or whatnot, pulled out of society and given this this information dump of all these abstract doctrines and abstract ideas of how to counsel people and care for people and once they're they're formed and, and pressed into what a priest is supposed to be then they're sent back into into the cities into the towns and the parishes um I have a bit of a Jesuit education, so I know that in a lot of ways the Jesuits had nothing to do with that. They were never about uh, separating from the world, from, from society. Interestingly, I, I took a course uh, at, during during my course, you know, studies at Regis College here in Toronto, and uh, the Jesuit who is part of whole network of community organizations and NGOs and, and uh, urban development uh, groups and and they were told and they they asked the rest of this network you know should we be doing more practically and of course Jesuits do plenty practically but uh, the the rest of the group said no you are doing plenty practically, but you're meant to be a contemplative voice among us. And that, I think, is a big part of the vision that Qui-Gon has in calling people to a richer faith in the Force and seeing that balance within themselves and in, in societies. Um, that for the Jedi to be for the Jedi to be guardians of peace and justice, to uphold peace and justice throughout the galaxy is to be contemplative servants of the light within the rest of the galaxy. Going on ahead, spoiler alert, we know he doesn't, Qui-Gon doesn't 
take his uh, seat on the council. We know that Obi Wan does one day. This is this is an interesting thing that, and and yeah, on the one hand, I mean this this gets even more to his realism that Qui Gon understands. Like he says, you know, it makes sense for the council to be there. Qui Gon understands. You know, Obi Wan Yoda. Uh, Oporentesis, all these other guys, all the other folks. Yes, the council is necessary. Council is important. Um, there needs to be this con contemplative oversight, sober oversight, that maybe isn't pulled down by the weight of uh, practical concerns too much. Um, but that's the problem, is that they, you know, they, they are too embedded in political concerns on this grand scale and preserving their own station and interests that uh, they aren't able to connect with the welfare of the galaxy. And so this hasn't happened yet. They go, they, they're caught into this war that they can't see that Darth Sidious is pulling them into. Um, it is interesting that he still recognizes, okay, you know, he's dead by this point, but I can see him, I can see Qui-Gon being proud of Obi-Wan going on the council, again, hopefully equipped to be more sensitive to concrete realities. And I do think, uh, and I do think we see that, I think we see that to some extent. He is sensitive, even to the very messy emotional reality of Anakin and Padme. He's able to navigate that, navigate the reality of the fall of the Jedi. Okay. And I've gone to until, until that. Um, it was a bit of an excursion. <laughs> going to seminaries, seminaries now, and Jesuits now. Uh, well, not just Jesuits, but Jesuits this whole time, but Seminaries now, churches really do have a, a clear sense of being present in society, being this contemplative, inspiring, faith-inspiring presence in society with people. Um, and I think directly of what Pope Francis talked about when he says he wants priests to have the smell of the sheep, how... When he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires, he was, speaking of another Jesuit, right? <laughs> he was, uh, uh, he would go to the barrios and meet people and know what pe how people were experiencing life. And he would take the bus. And, you know, now he says, no, I'm not going to live in the papal palace. I'm going to live in this, uh, this community, in the, in this hotel. And I'm sure, you know, he's, he's, doing fine but and part of it is because he probably couldn't stand the isolation um but he he had to he has to engage with real people or else what's his papacy going to be about what's his leadership in the church going to be about um so you know that's a clear parallel we see there um i do think about what monastic enclosure is actually about. Initially in the same course that 
This is on, on theology of grace. And grace being the real operation of, of God's love and faithfulness and uh, promise in our real lives. <laughs> right? And the monastic enclosure, we think it's all about being cut off from the world. And in some ways, yeah, there, there are some, some orders that you know, see it as their vocation, their charism to to know we're, we're actually going to devote ourselves to prayer. Right? It's not like they, they may say, oh, the world is evil, get away. Or they may say some people are called to some other thing. We're called to to pray. And that points to the fact you know, the monastic enclosure isn't supposed to be about being cut off from the world. It's about incorporating the world. And, and interesting in these monastic orders, I mean, the, I think about the Abbey of the Genesee, for example. Uh, the Trappists there, you know, they they make bread and they farm. And they have to be part of that uh, agricultural economy and the, the bread-making process and have to bring people in from the town to do that, right? Um, the function as retreat houses and places of pilgrimage for lay people in the world to come and encounter that contemplative presence. Right. Um, of course, Trappists make the best beer, right? <laughs> is a, is a, a related related thing. Um, and you know, lay people coming in and experiencing that contemplative presence. The contemplative presence of God, where we don't leave our problems or struggles at the door. Because God isn't afraid of of what we're struggling with, what we're dealing with. God wants to be present with our suffering. And yes, there is uh, of the role of the prophet to name the ways in which our society denies suffering and denies death. And so it is a prophetic act to say, yes, I struggle. Yes, I suffer. Yes, we are dying. It's one of the things that uh, the silver linings of, of this pandemic is. We have the opportunity to see just how fragile we are, to see our delusions of grandeur, um, to see the hope and promise of a society that comes together and takes care of people. Where are those masks, <laughs> right? Um, that that idea of the monastic enclosure, uh, you know, we can continue that. Uh, Joan Chittister has a wonderful book of poetry that reinterprets, I forget what it's called, but reinterprets the role of St. Benedict um, and said, and says, well, not reinterprets, but interprets and translates poetically some aspects of it for our life in the world. And, uh, you know, the idea is we are present in the world. And that's, that's clear with the parish, with the family, but that needs to be the message that the church has in a lot of ways. That, that we, we need to do a better job of saying, well, the, what Vatican II said most beautifully, the joys and hopes, grief and anguish of the people of our age 
They are the joys and hopes, grief and anguish of the disciples of Christ. I think that's a lot of what Qui-Gon is getting at with caring about the real world. And um, I'll finish with, uh, I, I, I mentioned, you know, the real world right below the Jedi. Um, back in May, uh, had had Dylan on, I had a guest on, talk about the Martez arc in the Clone Wars season seven, and which don't again don't sleep on that arc, <laughs> right? Um, it, it shows that either Qui Gon wasn't heard or he was pointing at something that just was too big to really address that even he didn't know right he couldn't see that this would actually lead to the, the fall of the jedi but we see the martez arc and you know there's the jedi temple above coruscant and then literally right below them not literally but basically right below them 1313 on coruscant is these two sisters struggling in a very dog-eat-dog world and that everyone on the top floor doesn't care about and doesn't know about. Um, in fact, there's one on the one guy on the top floor, Darth Sidious, who has used this dog-eat-dog world as part of his rise to power and will continue to do so. Right? He, he lets... The crime syndicates flourish in his empire. Right? We have this Mar the Martiz sisters and another Jedi Padawan who was taken from her family and raised in uh, raised in the seclusion of the temple. Uh, but you know, I mean, thanks to her tutelage under Anakin was given a bit more realism, right? <laughs> um, and then, of course, Ahsoka sees just how deluded the Jedi are in their pretensions to power and, and righteousness. She sees it firsthand and leaves the Order. And now I want to see a story that looks back on this moment. I mean, we do see in even in, in just in the Siege of Mandalore arc, we do see it a little bit, right? We see it in Rebels, how Ahsoka, just like Qui Gon, follows the path of the Prophet, uh, follows the path to say, "I'm actually going to go out. I'm not even going to take the mantle of Jedi because the Jedi are not fully following the light." And being that contemplative presence of the light in the real galaxy as it is. Um, and of course the Jedi are purged and she survives Order 66 and continues and joins the rebellion. Which is very gritty and very morally gray in some ways. Um, you know, and taking the fulcrum label that we're going to see with Cassian and K2, right? That there's some morally suspect things that some rebels have to do i don't know if ahsoka ends up doing those things so much but um, right from that moment that she leaves the temple 
goes and encounters the Martez sisters. She is the sign of the light. Morai, the daughter, has left the temple and is shining out into the real world. Encountering uh, people who are struggling and suffering. And she's in, she ends up staying true to her convictions. And, and almost, I mean, Anakin thinks she's going to come back to the Order, right? Uh, Anakin thinks she's going to be someone who who finishes what Qui-Gon was hoping for. Of course, that doesn't happen. But uh, Ahsoka truly encounters people again on in the, the Ahsoka novel. She, again, on the run, encountering these two, two women who are suffering under the boot of the Empire. Right? Um, doing what she can to help them, protect them, and make their lives better. You know, again, linking up with, with Kanan and Ezra, and um, yes, Kanan and Ezra are Jedi, and, and want that, that label. Ahsoka still doesn't, and I've gone into Ahsoka a lot, and so many parallels with Qui-Gon. It'll be interesting to see in future storytelling, maybe even in The Mandalorian, is she going to carry on Qui-Gon's realism and the power of his vision in connecting it with what real people are really experiencing and what they really need. I think that's that's a deep preoccupation for her. Is she going to lead a new, or inspire at least a new uh, new group of Force users to do that too? Luke only sort of did. I think Ray will definitely do that, but Ahsoka was the one to really. I want to see Ahsoka be the one to really carry that forward. There's a, there's a there is a lot of moving parts in this. I know, um, but that's the thing. I don't believe that our faith is an abstraction. If it's just an abstraction. We can at least ask questions, right? I don't believe experience, my personal experience, is the only be-all and end-all either. But if it isn't speaking to us, or if it is, better yet to say, if it is speaking to us, if I do encounter real hope and, and life in God as he claims to be, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can't say that's an abstraction, right? So it's important to to listen and to to listen humbly and Qui-Gon hoping praying to the force following the light that this one day is what ends up happening here's some what's up there I think it's <laughs> time to call it an episode this has been episode 60 of for Christ's sake, Anakin. If you uh, like what you hear, if you don't, whatever. Uh, <laughs> either way, let me know. And give me a follow on Twitter at neug485. Um, and you can follow on Instagram at mneug1138. You can see my 
brand spanking new arrangement of my Star Wars collection if you're into toys <laughs> and action figures. Uh, and I got a bit of Qui-Gon going on here too. So, um, yeah, this has been episode 60 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you always. <laughs>